Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our live webinar, Understanding the Brain to Treat Depression, as part of Mental Health Week. My name's Dr. James Casby. I'm a postdoctoral researcher here at QBI, and I'll be your MC today. While my research tends to focus on psychosis, as with many of these mental disorders, we often find that depression is a co-occurring problem. So I think it's really important that we understand the underlying mechanisms involved with depression. So firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians and owners of the lands on which we meet today. I pay our respects to their ancestors and their descendants who continue cultural and spiritual connections to country. We recognize their valuable contributions to Australian and global society. So before we get started, I have a few housekeeping items. On the webcast player, you'll notice a speech bubble. If you have any questions or comments throughout the webinar, please fill the form and click send. If you require technical support, please click on the I, where you'll find a link to access live chat support. Most importantly, this webinar will be available after as a, as a recording. So if you miss anything or have any troubles today, you can still watch it afterwards. For those of you familiar with the Queensland, for those of you not familiar with the Queensland Brain Institute, we're an institute with 400 staff, and we focus on all sorts of things. We've been around for 17 years, and basically every researcher here is looking to understand the organization, development, and function of the brain, and especially when those things become dysfunctional and cause some of these problems we have today. So today's webinar is on depression. And I think depression is a mental illness that we can all relate to in some way. We often get sad. We've all had those moments where we're not motivated to get out and do something, especially this year. But on the same note, while that's positive to reduce the stigma of the disorder, I think sometimes it can be counterproductive. People with severe depression and major depression have problems that we can't relate to. And I think that's part of the problem with why sometimes that can be counterproductive. And I think you'll hear today that when you have some of these severe disorders, they can be insidious and debilitating. But thankfully, we have some of the world's experts in depression research with us here today. We'll first hear from Dr. Janisa Javeri and Dr. Su Tai, who are using preclinical and translational approaches to understand what goes on in the brain during depression. Then we'll hear from Dr. Phil Mosley, a psychiatrist who specializes in deep brain stimulation approaches. We're gonna hear from each speaker, and then I'll ask them each a question. That's one of the perks of being the MC. And then we'll open up for the discussion at the end. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Denisha Javeri. Dr. Javeri has a joint appointment at the, as a group leader here at QBI and at MARTA Research. Her preclinical research focuses on understanding the brain's neuroplasticity mechanism relating to generating new neurons and how to harness this to improve outcomes for those with depression. Thank you. Thank you, James. Um, so as James alluded, depression is one of the most complex and heterogeneous disorder affecting millions and having an enormous socioeconomic and individual consequences. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors like Prozac, which have been used for over past 30 years, have had really good effect in some individuals, but in many, up to two thirds of them, either they are only partially effective or in fact, ineffective. Now this has led to treatment resistance, increased uh, rates of relapse, and also multitudes of side effects, which are all now contributing to being one of the leading causes of disability, depression being one of the leading causes of disability by 2030. Our efforts into developing new antidepressant uh, treatment drugs 
have met with a lot of challenges, in part because we really still do not understand completely the pathophysiology of depression and how really some of these antidepressants work in our brain. However, what has become really clear from large uh, efforts in research over the past several decades is the interaction between genetic factors and environmental factors that both play very important role in um, precipitating in, in uh, depression. What has become quite um, important is like environmental factors, especially those related to stressful events, early life stress, for example, or traumatic events, are major, major risk factors in developing um, depression. And these genetic and environmental risk factors have major impact and interact um, at the level of uh, affecting the brain plasticity mechanisms. And that really underpins whether a person is susceptible, for example, that, that they go on to develop depression, or they are much more resilient and they don't develop depression. So understanding how these genetic and environmental factors interact and how they impact these neuroplasticity mechanisms have become a major goal in this um, neuropsychiatric disorder. Now let's again consider that this is really a real condition. Depression is a real condition, just like diabetes or cancer. It's not just something of, of a mental state that you can get over with. There are structural and functional changes in the brain that are occurring in these patients. While there are a multitude of brain regions impacted um, in these disorders, um, one of my favorite one, the hippocampus, is one of the central node there. Now, hippocampus, if you have a damage to this region, which sits in your temporal lobe and is a seahorse-shaped structure, it actually affects your learning capabilities and mood regulation. Now, what has been shown, in fact, is in patients suffering from depression, there is a, a significant reduction in the volume of, these, of this structure, the hippocampus. And this atrophy, hippocampal atrophy, is correlated with the depression severity, as you can see on the right-hand side, the red being where the, the atrophied area in the hippocampus. So it's needless to say that such a complex disorder will have a very complex and multifactorial mechanisms implicated. And again, research for over the last few decades have uncovered uh, multitudes of these um, uh, mechanisms involving, for example, changes or chemical imbalance in the brain, uh, changes in how we respond to stress, for example, the uh, changes in the stress axis, even uh, things related to inflammation. What is really important here is that many of these uh, findings have come from using well-defined animal models. These animal models have been crucial in providing some of the insights into how these different uh, factors, such as neurotransmitters or chemicals that I just spoke about, or stress, really alters the structure and function of the brain. And the reason that we can do that is, especially, for example, those related to the stress and how stress impacts um, the axis which regulates the stress response, is actually evolutionary conserved across organisms, including in, in mouse and human. So the way 
the human or a mouse response to a stressful situation and the cascade of events that happen following that are actually similar. Therefore, I think one of the central uh, tenet has from these uh, studies uh, have led to the idea that these structural and functional changes in defined neural circuits actually underpin some of the symptoms or the core features that are associated with depression, such as anhedonia, such as uh, low mood, uh, such as those re uh, related to anxiety or, or decision-making or reward. And hence, these circuit-based mechanisms have become one of the important areas of um, investigation in recent years. And one such circuit-based um, mechanism um, which involves neuroplasticity is generation of new neurons, a focus of my research program. So adult neurogenesis uh, is a process by which neurons are generated in the adult brain. This there was a dogma that existed much of the last century that our brains are immutable and new, new nerve cells cannot be generated. However, there is now sufficient and considerable evidence showing that this form of neuroplasticity plasticity mechanism actually occurs in the adult brain, including in the human. We actually have um, resident population of neural stem, stem cells residing in the brain, and in this case, um, I'll show you a picture that shows in red these stem cells residing in the hippocampus, my favorite structure, in the mouse brain. And these stem cells, upon the correct stimulation, can lead to actually activation and generation of new neurons. And these neuron, new neurons are believed to actually rejuvenate the circuit that, are, that they are growing in uh, so as to contribute and impact functions such as learning and mood. Interestingly, this generation of new neurons is very sensitive to various environmental factors such as physical exercise, antidepressants, and environmental enrichment. And they are negatively impacted, this process, by stress, aging, and inflammation. So you can see already here that stress and antidepressants, two of the major, uh, uh, two of the major things uh, in understanding um, the biology of depression and the treatment, are actually having a huge impact on this neuroplasticity mechanism. And this has led to the hypothesis in the field um, and, and the theory that impaired neurogenesis due to chronic stress actually leads to some aspects of mood dysregulation. And antidepressants, on the other hand, which increase or restore neurogenesis are partially responsible, this process is partially responsible for the beneficial effects of antidepressants. However, how precisely these stress and antidepressant impact these population of new neurons and regulate genetic expression, their connectivity within the circuit, and their functional activity are some of the questions which are still unanswered. And this is what my research program has fo is focused on answering in our lab. So in the lab, we actually interrogate this at multiple levels, um, encompassing um, um, things looking at the cellular mechanisms, how really stress affects the production and the integration of these new neurons, what are the behavioral consequences of these um, in, in animals where we can read out um, some of the core symptoms of, uh, of depression such as anxiety or anhedonia, 
And on a broader scale, we're trying to interrogate how it affects really the brain-wide connection and the activity. So for example, I've just given one snippet of some, uh, some of the work that we do where we have developed um, an animal model of depression uh, where we can show that prolonged stress over a period of one month leads to anxiety-like behavior in animals show, shown here in increased um, um, latency to eat in an orange bar. But if these animals are treated concomitantly with antidepressants, you can prevent um, these anxiety-like phenotypes. And this uh, provides us as an, and as an inroad and as, a, as an, um, a, a mechanism where we can exploit how really antidepressants are working at a cellular level. And this has already led to our understanding um, that these neurons, new neurons, are critical for mediating both the response to stress and the effects of antidepressants, whereby they may be affecting select biology of these neurons, for example, in this case, how they really develop. And this has given us ways and insights into perhaps harnessing this mechanism to um, either prevent or treat depression. So to conclude, I think um, psychiatry um, is really in an exciting phase of discovery um, at the moment and with um, new mechanisms that have been uncovered, both genetic and the circuit-based mechanisms which are um, involved in regulation of mood, we are certainly on the path to um, come up with and, and, and discover new ways to treat this disorder. Uh, so you've shown some interesting things with stress and antidepressants. How do you think this, as a translational animal model, how do you think it's going to help uh, human applications in the future? Thanks, James, for that. This is a really important question because, um, as you're aware, many of our um, studies which are looking at the cause and effect relationship in animals and which show importance of certain cellular mechanisms and circuit mechanisms, how they really, we are, how we can actually translate into humans is, is um, sort of the next um, era. And I think uh, the important things to consider here are both the scale and the resolution of our um, understanding of the brain. While in animals, we, with modern neuroscience tools, where we can visualize and manipulate very selective population of neurons and subpopulations of neurons in, in defined circuits to interrogate how they impact behavior, these are really not yet open to um, sort of uh, uh, question, uh, they're not open to our understanding in, in the human brain. So we have to have certain modalities or technologies that bridge this gap. And some of the recent advances that have been, been made in, in making neural recordings, so using very high um, uh, um, recording devices to actually look, uh, look peer into the uh, neuronal activity in the brain-wide manner, along with probably magnetic resonance imaging um, analysis and capabilities that we have probably will be a very useful um, way forward in combining and bridging this divide. Oh, excellent, thank you very much. So our next speaker is Dr. Sue Tai. Dr. Tai is a group leader here at QBI. Her work uses clinical and preclinical approaches to understand how antidepressant treatments reverse the effects of stress, what biological factors block these effects, and how we can use biomarkers to help predict what treatments may be the most effective in uh, people with depression. Thank you, Sue. 
So my research, I think, complements Denisha's um, very nicely. Denisha has done so much work to explore how depression uh, or how stress changes the brain to induce depression-like behaviours and what are the underlying um, neurobiological mechanisms um, associated with that. My work looks now at how can we reverse that, how can we repair the brain following exposure to chronic stress or traumatic stress. And, you know, first I just want to highlight that depression is so much more, even than the, the brain and um, psychiatric symptoms in terms of the emotional symptoms that we so often associate with depression, feelings of low mood or anxiety or tearfulness. There's a whole host of physical symptoms that occur with depression that indicate it goes much deeper than that and actually it's a whole body disorder. Um, it affects energy, it affects um, sleep, it affects um, uh, aches and, and just a sort of general function um, throughout both the body and the brain. And this, we found, is really important for actually how the brain responds to antidepressants. And antidepressants, um, I've, when I first started in this area, I assumed that they worked for everybody, that if you took a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, you'd increase levels of serotonin in the brain and that would replace the serotonin deficit that was popular at the time um, to be a cause of depression. We know now from studying how people respond to antidepressants that that's not the case. It's not a matter of taking an antidepressant and getting better. Only about 37% of patients that seek help through antidepressant therapy will receive a therapeutic benefit from their first treatment trial of an antidepressant. And those that don't respond go on to try another treatment and over you know, a sequential trial and error of different antidepressants, um, we find that there's still a, a subgroup of individuals that aren't responding to any of the available antidepressant treatments out there. And we're really interested to find out what are the reasons that some people don't respond. And as Denisha nicely pointed out, part of what antidepressants are doing are helping the brain repair the damages incurred by stress. And antidepressants are far more than just antidepressant in the sense that they reverse that negative mood. They're actually blocking or reversing the harmful effects of stress on the brain. And we know they do that through mechanisms that promote neuroprotection, neuroplasticity, and neurogenesis. And they do that via stimulating um, molecular machinery within the cells that facilitates neurotrophic or growth factor signaling, essentially signals that promote the growth and repair of the connections between brain cells. One thing that we've discovered um, is that what is essential and what has been overlooked for quite uh, a period because we've been so focused on trying to understand the effects of stress on the brain is actually that there are limiting factors that prevent this response from occurring. If the brain can't make use of energy effectively or doesn't have the available nutrients to undertake this repair process, then antidepressants are limited in their capacity to rebuild the brain and repair those uh, damaging effects of stress. So our work 
has really tried to zero in on these mechanisms. And we've found that just by exposing an animal to chronic stress hormones, so adrenocorticotropic hormone is a hormone that stimulates the stress response. It's a very natural process. It happens in, um, in all of us every day just to facilitate daily biorhythms. When that occurs or that rhythm becomes dysregulated, it has um, effects that trickle on to um, metabolic systems and inflammatory systems. And we think this is, contributes to some of the physiologic um, consequences or, or side effects that, that are seen in depression, symptoms that are seen in depression. What's illustrated here are some of the molecular pathways involved in rebuilding um, the connections between brain cells. And we've known for a long time that antidepressants stimulate those growth processes and that response is associated with the time course of recovery. So the serotonergic-based treatments can take weeks to months to be effective and it takes those weeks to months for the cells to adapt to facilitate these growth processes. Other newer, newer treatments, um, such as rapid-acting antidepressants, where these therapeutic effects can be seen over the course of hours to days um, and, and occur very rapidly, they also stimulate this cellular machinery very rapidly. And using these particular um, rapid-acting antidepressants, we've been able to study the effects of dysregulating the stress hormone axis and um, impairing mitochondrial function and um, promoting inflammation on blocking these particular pathways. And as Denisha said, using animal models has been so important for this because we've not only been able to study it in the brains of these animals, but show that we can actually measure these changes in their peripheral blood, which has led us on to thinking about how can we identify some of these changes um, in the blood of patients? How can we potentially um, know in advance if somebody is likely to respond um, to first-line antidepressant therapy? And how can we potentially take that and use it as a predictive biomarker? And one of the, the key um, molecules in the body that is regulating this neurotrophic growth response and also coordinating energy metabolism um, is insulin. And we've been able to see that ketamine is rapidly regulating the release of insulin in the, the brain and the body. Ketamine is very interesting because patients will respond to it very quickly um, or they won't respond at all. And um, in a clinical trial, um, we identified that approximately half of the, the individuals that were receiving ketamine responded very rapidly. And by their second treatment, um, they had received a, a very robust um, change in mood. Um, the other half of the group didn't respond. Building on what we had seen from our animal studies and the way that the brain was responding to ketamine to promote the antidepressant response, we wanted to look if we could see that at the level of a um, peripheral blood cell. Um, so we took those blood cells um, from the, the patients and we were able to stimulate them with insulin and look at activation of these pathways. And we've seen repeatedly now that there's a very rapid 
um, uh, differentiation um, between the remitters, the patients that receive that therapeutic benefit and the non-remitters at the level of the uh, at white blood cell. And our next step is really to try to develop new ways to target this treatment, to target these mechanisms so that we can promote um, that antidepressant response more effectively to facilitate that metabolic machinery and enable the brain to respond um, as effectively as possible to antidepressants. Thank you. Thanks, Sue. So you mentioned earlier in your talk about everyone is different with regards to what leads to all their symptoms with depression. So if the holy grail is precision medicine, personalised medicine to each individual, how do you see the relationship between sort of broad treatments versus precision and personalised medicine in the near future before we reach that end goal, holy grail? Yeah, I think it's starting to um, really appreciate that a disorder like depression is heterogeneous and really looking at... Um, the individual. There are currently a whole host of different antidepressant treatments available and even just taking the time to talk through the different symptom profiles that different patients might have um, can provide insight into what might be the best approach um, for each individual and, and augmenting um, uh, the pharmaceutical therapies with behavioural interventions and regulating sleep patterns and optimising diet and all of these other factors can be incredibly helpful. Um, but I think it, it, what we can do now is really take the individual and look a little bit um, more closely at the expression of those symptoms to see, you know, what is the right best, the right treatment for that individual versus this is the first treatment we always offer um, and you should try that. Fantastic. <clears throat> okay, so our final speaker is Dr. Phil Mosley. Dr. Mosley is a psychiatrist and fellow at QBI and QIMR Birkhoff Medical Research Institute. His work is looking at how deep brain stimulation can improve symptoms across multiple disorders. Thanks, Phil. Thanks, James. Um, I thought I'd just give a little bit of uh, an insight into the research I do, although, of course, I'm, I'm very happy to answer any questions from a clinical perspective about the treatment of depression as a psychiatrist. So one of the cool things that I do is I'm part of a clinical team using deep brain stimulation to treat movement disorders and increasingly treatment-resistant psychiatric conditions. Deep brain stimulation is a minimally invasive form of targeted brain manipulation. In a neurosurgical procedure, um, two or more electrodes are inserted into the brain under very precise guidance using neuroimaging and electrophysiological recordings. In Parkinson's disease, the typical target for the uh, electrode implantation is a region of the brain called the subthalamic nucleus, which is deep within the brain about the size of an almond. One electrode is implanted per hemisphere. And the team that do that at, uh, in Brisbane are led by Professor Peter Silburn and Assistant Professor Terry Coyne, and I'm, I'm the psychiatrist in, in the team there. Um, the team in Brisbane have been operating for um, over 15 years and are one of the most experienced teams worldwide in the application of this therapy, um, having implanted over uh, 1,100 cases of people with movement disorders. Um, so th they really are uh, groundbreaking leaders in their field and I'm very lucky to be a part of that team. The reason why a psychiatrist is involved in uh, the treatment of movement disorders is well twofold. Firstly, um, 
movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease have a very strong non-motor uh, uh, element of comorbidity, so things like depression are uh, in very prevalent in people with Parkinson's disease. Up to 50% of people with Parkinson's disease will suffer with depression during the course of their illness. Secondly, the, one of the unintended side effects of electrical stimulation within this particular target is mood changes and changes in behaviour. And one of the unintended benefits of that, in turn, is our ability, um, as both Denisha and Sue have mentioned, to enable circuit-based interrogation of specific symptom profiles and behaviours in the human brain um, in these individuals who have been uh, implanted with deep brain stimulating electrodes. And that's really what my research has, has focused on. Um, so one of the things that we can do with uh, these individuals is look at exactly where their electrodes have been implanted and using the neuroimaging that we've acquired as part of their, um, uh, their, their, their surgical workflow, uh, simulate which regions of the brain are being stimulated with electricity. And then we can map that using structural or functional connectivity to specific brain networks, brain circuits that are activated, if you, if you will, with this um, with this pattern of focused electrical stimulation. And we can map that to behavioural changes in our, in our patients. And in people with Parkinson's disease, one of the most common side effects of deep brain stimulation is actually the reverse of depression. It's mood elevation, harmful mood elevation, which we term mania. Now, this is relevant here because it gives us an insight into which circuits in the brain can increase mood in individuals with treatment-resistant depression, for example. So it gives us that ability to be almost transdiagnostic in our studies, looking at one disorder, what pattern of brain network activi activities associated with mood elevation, can we then apply it to people who don't have Parkinson's but have treatment-resistant depression to change their pattern of brain network activation to treat their intractable disorder. Um, one of the powerful things that we've done in our research is team our brain imaging with some behavioural assays which are more sensitive to, um, uh, to changes in symptom profiles. So one of the, the challenges in, in psychiatry is a lot of our assessments are based on quite lengthy and detailed mental state assessments or symptom checklists which take a long time to administer and aren't particularly sensitive. What we developed, what we've been developing are more sensitive behavioural assays to tap into real world type of behaviour. And in our Parkinson's patients, we designed a casino for them to play in to capture some of this impulsive and risk taking behaviour that some of them um, exemplify following the, the, the deep brain stimulation. And using this information, we were able to identify specific brain circuits that were implicated in these psychiatric changes, unwanted psychiatric changes, in our participants, in our patients who've had subthalamic DBS. One of the other um, studies that I've been involved with through my, um, my role in, in the deep brain stimulation team is treating intractable psychiatric conditions with DBS. And we've just completed a trial of deep brain stimulation for treatment refractory obsessive compulsive disorder. And again, that's a different disorder to depression. People with obsessive compulsive disorder have very intrusive and unwanted 
thoughts that are, that are their own thoughts, they're not psychotic in nature, but they're typically associated with things such as contamination, harm, threat, unwanted sexual thoughts, blasphemous thoughts, and people with OCD often have ritualistic behaviours that they engage in to mitigate the anxiety that those thoughts, um, uh, that those thoughts engender. Like depression, the first-line treatment is antidepressants, and like depression, many people with OCD don't respond to treatment with antidepressants. And we took a group of people with lifelong refractory obsessive-compulsive disorder and stimulated in a region of the brain called the bad nucleus of the stria terminalis. And again, using DBS, we were able to interrogate the brain and find out exactly which circuits were implicated in recovery from their previously debilitating psychiatric disorder. Um, interestingly, we found uh, that circuits involving the hippocampus, the amygdala, and the fornix, um, a circuit that's, that's, that's known as the circuit of Papez, was implicated in uh, um, uh, the people recovering from OCD after deep brain stimulation. So, Again, that gives us an opportunity in the future to increasingly, for this disorder, personalize this treatment to make sure that we are targeting that circuit implicated in fear conditioning and habitual behavior with our electrical stimulation, with our focused electrical stimulation. And applied to depression, um, it also is, gives further credence to the sense that really we should be trying to, for these people with very severe treatment-resistant depression in whom we're considering deep brain stimulation, we should be really trying to personalize the treatment based on brain network architecture and symptom profile to try and stimulate regions of the brain that are implicated in um, treatment non-response. Okay, thank you. Thanks, Phil. Um, so obviously deep brain stimulation is kind of limited to the very severe mental illnesses that can't be treated with any other form. Mm -hmm. Do you see anything in the future technological-wise or anything else that might be used with a broader suite of people that maybe doesn't require surgery or but does the same idealistic thing that you're doing for deep brain stimulation? Yeah, well, transcranial magnetic stimulation is, is, is the obvious um, candidate there. Um, so that's a non-invasive form of neuromodulation where a magnetic coil is applied to the scalp and um, using strong magnets that induces a change in electrical activity in a specific region of the brain. And interestingly, um, recent research, um, including research from, from Australia, has shown that um, treatment response is, is really defined by picking up those brain networks that are implicated in DBS response in depression. Um, the, the benefits of TMS are that it's non-invasive, of course. The drawbacks of TMS is it's not as powerful treatment as deep brain stimulation, obviously. Um, it requires lots of sessions, so you have to have a session a day, preferably five days a week for a month to get a treatment response. Um, and then you have to have repeated sessions because it's not a continuing treatment. However, for many Australians with mild to moderate symptoms of depression, um, it, it's a much more acceptable form of, of therapy and would be, um, uh, is, uh, is being increasingly used in, in Australia. Fantastic. Okay, thanks for that, everyone. So I'd like to open up for questions and comments now. Um, so if you click on the speech bubble below me, I'm told, um, you can please provide your name and email address just in case we don't get to your question today. Uh, we also have some staff from QBI here in the audience. Uh, for everyone in the room, please wait till you get the microphone to speak so that people on the web can hear your questions. 
So do you see a place for ketamine long-term in the treatment of depression, specifically neural plasticity? Who wants to open that one? Sue? So, yeah, I think um, definitely ketamine has been a paradigm changer for the field of um, antidepressant um, therapeutics. And I think the, the goal is really looking at how can we take what we've learnt from ketamine and develop something that has lower risk for um, patients longer term. And so I think it has, you know, it has done amazing things and it's very helpful for a lot of people. But um, even if ketamine remains something that's used continuously, are there ways that we can augment it and lower doses um, so there's less risk of some of the, the negative um, effects of ketamine? Um, what is the differences between antidepressants and anxiolytic drugs? Do they work differently in, on the brain? When is it not okay to take them? I'll oh. take that one. Um, so uh, this is a conversation I often have with my, uh, with my patients. Um, they say when I'm treating them for other conditions such as depression um, with an antidepressant, they say, but doctor, I'm not depressed. Why are you prescribing me an antidepressant? And I, and I have to say to them, well, they're called antidepressants because in, in, in Western society, we just love classifying things and lumping things into categories. And what we do with these medications is we alter the physiology and functioning of the brain. And we can do that for various conditions, including depression, anxiety. I use antidepressants to augment um, executive functioning in people with brain injury and Parkinson's disease. Um, antidepressants can be used for neuropathic pain. Um, there's a post-traumatic stress disorder. There's a broad range of functioning, uh, broad range of, um, uh, of, of, of conditions where antidepressants can be used. Anxiety is a condition where um, antidepressants are also very effective, different types of anxiety. I, I, won't, I won't get into it. So you can talk about an antidepressant also being an anxiolytic, anxiolytic meaning relief or reduction of anxiety. There's another group of medications called benzodiazepines, which um, have a very different pharmacology work on the um, uh, GABA system in the brain um, uh, and are much more crude, if you will. They're, um, they, uh, they're, they're sedating. They, they, do help. they do have a role in psychiatry and in medicine. They can be used to help sleep. They can be used as an acute treatment for anxiety. Um, they can be used during alcohol withdrawal. Um, they can be used as muscle relaxants. Um, the, diff the thing about um, benzodiazepines is that they do have a capacity to show tolerance and dependence. So over time, you need higher doses of the drug to get the same effect. And if you don't get the drug, you get withdrawal symptoms. So we tend to try and use them very sparingly in medicine, but they do have a role. Oh, excellent response. Very detailed. Thank you. Um, so we hear a lot about early detection. Uh, do you think there's any way, and I think we can go through the panel members here, do you think there's any way we can prevent depression? And what, what is the risk associated with trying to go down that path? Yeah, I, I can answer that. Um, that is a very important, again, a question. And I think, again, the animal models here are going to be quite powerful. Um, and combining animal models with the modern neuroscience tools, such as, again, visualizing and manipulating selective neuronal subpopulation within a circuit will provide us with ways to understand how these circuits regulate, as Phil was talking about, certain symptoms or features that are associated with anxiety depression kind of behavior. For example, fear and anxiety 
um, reward circuits, uh, decision making. Um, so this, combined with some of the understanding of how stress affects some of the early events in changing these neural circuits, how it impacts gene expression within these neuronal subpopulation, and what effect does it have at the epigenetic levels, will start to provide us probably some insights where we can use those to think about ways and strategies to intervene at an earlier stage to prevent that progression into a later stage. Do you think we could use blood markers to detect who's at risk? We can certainly detect um, a number of factors in the blood that might indicate somebody is um, maybe hyper-reactive to stresses or particular stimuli. Um, the better we understand the, the cellular um, consequences of chronic exposure to stress, um, the earlier we can intervene. So we do see accelerated aging at the cellular level. Um, but I think it's important to also remember that uh, you know, a lot of, particularly what we've learned from animal models is that Stress um, has a significant effect on um, risk for depression. It doesn't affect everybody in the same way, and there are a number of factors that can buffer that effect of stress. And they can be physiologic, um, such as making sure to um, optimize um, you know, all of the really simple things that we, that we all know about, eating well, exercising, um, having good sleep hygiene, um, having uh, good connections with um, social networks, um, but there's you know, also a number of psychological um, things that can be taught, for example, to, to children as they're going through primary school and high school that can help them um, better interpret or more effectively interpret negative stimuli in the environment that can um, in turn have physiologic consequences on how they perceive and then feel stress. Um, and over time, that can also be um, protective. Any comments, Phil? So the question is, how do we prevent depression? Yeah, is it possible? Or? Uh, yeah, I think I agree with everything that's been said. Um, I think my two senses are uh, if we could um, eliminate inequality, um, uh, reduce child abuse, um, that would be two good things that would significantly reduce the prevalence of depression. Um, from my point of view, that's what I hear a lot in my, in my clinic. Um, so how do antidepressants increase neurogenesis, I suppose? We're gonna you again here, Anisha? Yes, so in fact, um, our own research has shown that certain classes of antidepressants act uh, directly on the neural stem cells, the precursors which are present um, within these neurogenic niches, thereby stimulating them and leading to increased uh, production. However, there are also reports suggesting that uh, some of the antidepressants increase uh, the survival capacity of these um, newborn neurons. So there is both an element of increased production and increased survival of these um, neurons. Um, that's the way probably the antidepressants actually contribute to increased neurogenesis. Fantastic. Okay, I think this is a question for uh, Sue. Uh, how do you define treatment resistant or refractories in your, in your talk before? Like, what stages does someone have to go through before their class is you know, treatment resistant? Um, and Phil can probably <laughs> clarify this as well. Um, the definition of um, treatment-resistant depression is somebody who's failed um, two antidepressant trials of adequate dose or duration. Um, and you know, that is essentially um, the, the limits of that clinical classification 
But in reality, you know, I would say that there's a spectrum of treatment resistance and that doesn't take into account whether somebody has trialled two different classes of antidepressants or it doesn't have any selectivity to that particular definition, which I think is something that needs to change as we better understand how different people respond more effectively on different treatments. Just because somebody's non-responsive to serotonergic or noradrenergic treatments doesn't necessarily mean they won't respond to something that might target a different system, the dopaminergic system or an inflammatory mechanism. Um, and I think that label can actually have negative connotations if that's not understood or explained effectively. Uh, there's a question that scrolled through earlier. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I guess from a clinical perspective, the sort of algorithm I, I follow when I'm seeing patients who have who've come to me with, with quote-unquote treatment-resistant depression, I think you've got to ask a number of things. Number one, is the diagnosis right? Do they, do they have a depressive disorder or do they have complex trauma? Um, do they have personality disorder? Do they have an incipient neurodegenerative disease? Um, it's uh, lots of things can look like depression that aren't depression. Um, do they have a substance abuse problem? Are they taking the medication? Are they taking it correctly? Um, is the dose right? Um, are there cultural or social factors that have been overlooked in their presentation that are contributing um, to the maintenance of their depressive symptoms? So it can be a little bit complex, but then there is an algorithm, you know, algor defined algorithms that you would follow from a biological and psychological standpoint. Um, so not just what drugs have they been on, what psychological treatments have they been offered? Um, is a psychotherapeutic treatment more, more appropriate for this person than a pharmacological treatment? And if it's a pharmacological treatment, then yep, going through all the different neurotransmitters and augmenting with other therapies such as stimulant medication, atypical antipsychotics, transcranial magnetic stimulation, those, those kind of things. That's what we do. Oh, thank you. So um, basically a lot of young people are presenting with depression now, uh, potentially more than a decade ago. Do you have any thoughts as to why that's the case? Is it better detection? Is it, is it maybe more things going on or you know, less resilience training in, in childhood? Or? No. Um, I, I, a lot of people say, oh, depression is being overdiagnosed. I would flip that question. I would say, actually, the risk is that depression is being still underdiagnosed because we know that suicide is one of the leading causes of death in young Australians. Um, and many, I mean, just today, um, an AFLW player is thought to have died by suicide um, and so we've got to ask ourselves are enough people being diagnosed and treated appropriately for depression given that it's a potentially fatal illness mm, yeah, thank you okay so with stress responses having immune modulating effects in the periphery is there a microglial effect essentially that and does this have effects on development and dep of depressive illnesses so or yeah, and the question is yes, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of unknown um, uh, sort of factors here as to um, whether, which, what's the direction or is it happening simultaneously? And that's a very active area of investigation um, currently. But microglia play a critical role in regulating brain function um, as well as synaptic plasticity. And chronic stress um, 
in animal models induces a depressive-like phenotype through inflammation. And if you give anti-inflammatories early in that course of stress exposure, it can actually block that particular phenotype. Um, however, later in the course, following that chronic exposure um, and the consequences on the, the immune system, um, actually stimulating inflammation is protective and has an antidepressant effect. So it's a very nuanced uh, system um, that we really don't understand well enough at this, at this point in time. Um, but there are definitely strong links between um, the stress system, the inflammatory um, system and the metabolic system and they're all intertwined. So um, when one shifts, the other two also shift and that um, there's still so many questions that we need um, answers for with respect to that. Do you have any comments, Anisha? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Right, we have a question from the audience now. So if you're speaking to the microphone, please. All right, thank you. Thanks for the um, good presentations. So I just had a question about um, how we know that depression can exist um, concurrently with other medical diseases, and we also know that certain medications can induce depressive-like symptoms. Do you have different um, approaches to treatment for these sort of um, comorbidities, and um, do they pose their own challenges? Yes, I guess uh, I'm, a, I'm a liaison psychiatrist by training, which means that I'm a psychiatrist that works in a general medical and surgical hospital, so my day is spent um, meeting people with medical and surgical issues and depression, so I see a lot of people with um, depression in the setting of cancer, neurodegenerative disease, um, treatments that can induce depression. I think you know, one of the things you do as a psychiatrist uh, is that you're trying to, um, to do anyway is, is to, to formulate each case individually. So you've got to ask yourself, why is this person presenting with this problem? And why is this person presenting now? So you, you develop an individualized conception of each case and that guides your treatment. So it's difficult to be sort of generally um, prescriptive, but for, for, for example, I'll give you an example, treat a lot of people with Parkinson's disease. And what we see in Parkinson's disease in the early stages of Parkinson's disease is a very high prevalence of depression, primarily due to dopaminergic denervation. So as the dopaminergic connections in the brain are, are dying off, um, the brain becomes depleted in dopamine. Not only does that cause tremor, stiffness, slowness, but it can also precipitate anxiety and depression because those frontosubcortical circuits in the brain are not, uh, are not firing properly. So interestingly, what I do in those situations is I don't actually treat them with antidepressants. Um, I say, look, you need to crank up your dopaminergic therapy. So I put, usually put them on a dopamine agonist, which is quite a powerful antidepressant in these individuals. So it does change your treatment paradigm for those people, yeah. I might follow that question up. So how, how do you go about looking at that in animal models? Obviously, that makes it a world more complex. Um, can you both answer? I don't know who goes first. But. Yeah, um, that is interesting in terms of, I think, um, not with respect to the example that uh, Phil gave, but I think I can think of other conditions such as, uh, for example, Crohn's disease or irritable bowel syndrome, where um, the frontline therapy there is actually um, glucocorticoids, the stress hormones, to manage the inflammation associated with those, those, the, those disorders. But as a consequence of that, 
there is a high rate of or high incidence of anxiety and depression um, that develop in these patients. So I think uh, studies have just begun to model these uh, nuances and aspects of, in a way, two hit models, where you have uh, uh, peripheral conditions like such as IBD, where you can actually um, um, model stress response and look at basically how that affects um, the changes in some of the stress axis, but also in the brain and lead to some of the behavioral consequences. So I think these kind of more complex interactive studies um, in animal models have actually just begun. So? Yeah, and um, I would second that. And um, you know, I think it really speaks to better understanding the physiology as a whole because the different perturbations on, on physiology um, have different effects on the brain. Um, so with inflammation, chronic inflammation, it can induce a depression-like phenotype through very similar mechanisms to um, Parkinson's in terms of the dopamine depletion and drugs that are effective in Parkinson's can have antidepressant effects in those. Um, models as well, um, and even in, in um, human subjects in, in small trials. Um, they've shown that that's um, uh, similarly effective. Um, with the metabolic disturbances, we, we see um, diabetic treatments as having very um, robust effects on that antidepressant-like response. Um, so metformin is actually more effective than um, a serotonergic treatment. And you know, I think it partly in, in those instances, it's about bringing things back into balance and, and facilitating where that specific deficit is showing up in the, um, the neurobiology. Mm, I guess ever more complex. Mm. Uh, so there's a question that came through earlier that I'm actually interested in hearing your response to, Phil. So is DBS a cure for depression or is it a temporary alleviation? Like how, how effective is it in, in your hands, do you think? Well, not in your hands, but you know. So I think I've seen that question. Um, so is that DB, is it the one that says DBS? Is it just treating the symptoms, or is it? Yeah, is it relieving the symptoms? Yeah, I love that question. Um, I get this question all the time um, with all treatments. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, so one thing some people say about um, treatments in psychiatry is that they don't treat the underlying cause; they just mask the symptoms, um, and that's that's a sort of uh, statement that I try and counter because whilst in psychiatry we can think about things from a molecular level to a historical and sociocultural level, what we've got with someone with very severe depression is a potentially fatal life-limiting illness with um, impacts not just on their well-being, but also depression is robustly linked to medical Ill, med later medical ill health as well. So we've really got to treat it. Um, and if just tr relieving symptoms helps people stay alive and reduces their suffering and allows them to engage with their families and raise their children and stay in their job, well, that's just fantastic. And I'm delighted um, by that. The other thing I'd say is that often when people are extremely depressed, even if you can formulate their case and say, well, this is the cause of your depression, you know, the cause of your depression is that you had a bad, you know, you were, you had adverse childhood experiences and this trauma and these social and historical and cultural factors. Well, that's good, but how is it going to help the person right now to recover 
when they can't get out of bed, when they can't feed themselves, when they are, can't enjoy anything, when they're having suicidal thoughts, when they're hearing voices telling them that they're not, it's not worth living. So what these uh, treatments do in psychiatry is they help the person recover to a stage where they can address those factors. So what I say to my patients is, well, this, this tablet, this, you know, this pill, this, this th therapy, it's not going to change your personality. It's just going to give you a leg up so that you can actually address all these other factors in your life and recover. Excellent. So I think this will be the final question for today's discussion, but it's kind of a broad one, so you can all kind of touch on it. Um, it, it relates to the time frame of these type of uh, projects and experiences in science and getting to an end point, all right? And I think a lot of people have very uh, short-sighted views of how quick these things progress, especially at the different levels that you're all doing research at. So do you comment on sort of how long it takes to, to get to these places where you might think of developing the next treatment or to learn these processes and move the, the science forward? And in what ways you kind of contribute to that? If we go from left to right, Denisha. My left to right. Yes. Um, I mean, as we know, uh, discovery science to actually translating those understanding to bench, from bench to the bedside, it is a long process. Um, and I don't think there is a particular time frame that one can assign to such processes. I think it's far more important to concentrate on how we can push our boundaries towards understanding some of the intricacies of these processes from molecular to cellular to circuit to systemic levels involving the whole physiology. Um, but having said that, I think the current uh, advances in technologies that we have at our disposal in neuroscience have, I think, already begun to make some differences. For example, there was a study published about, I think, two years ago, uh, talking about how we can stratify or parcelate um, different uh, uh, patients suffering from depression into different uh, categories based on their fMRI signature and how that correlates with their behavioral symptoms and which signature is actually responsive to uh, TMS treatment, for example. And I think these kind of approaches will certainly make, um, have a way forward in our treatment um, options. So I think the process has already begun, but it's very hard to put a definite time frame on this. And I agree with everything um, Denisha just said, and, and I'd really just add that it's, it's important to remember that translation from bench to bedside is very much a team sport, and the more conversations we have like this and the more interdisciplinary our research programs and clinical programs can become, um, and we find a common language across um, across groups, then the faster this translational process will be. And I think it is speeding up. Um, progress is happening faster and faster because of that. Um, and it's really part of the vision, I think, here for QBI and, um, and medical research um, is, is really taking this um, in its stride that, that it, it is team science. It's basic science um, working hand in hand with clinical application and, and bridging every sort of aspect in between. And a big part of that is actually um, patient involvement and stakeholder involvement. So 
participating in the research, you know, asking questions, um, making suggestions, all of that is really um, valuable and part of that, that team approach. Mm, I agree with everything that's been said, um, 100%. Um, the, the, yeah, fantastic, especially the um, collaborative element. I think as a clinician researcher, um, you know, I'm at, the, I'm at the bedside, but I can't do anything without the years of um, preclinical research that's been carried out. Um, we are just so dependent on all of that hard work that's gone in before us. Um, and it's, it's it, the and the other thing, I'd, a couple of other things I'd say is that I think probably in psychiatry, um, we've not made as much progress as we like, um, it, primarily because psychiatry is very difficult. And one of the things that we have been focusing on in the past is, is, is very broad diagnoses. And now I think we're focusing more on behavioral um, endo, what we call endophenotypes, so um, sub-syndromal patterns of behavior that are perhaps transdiagnostic rather than unique to one particular disorder, which has a more discrete mapping onto what's actually happening in the brain. Um, so I think that's a big progress for, for psychiatry and we're seeing um, more and more research focusing on those, those kind of aspects now. And I, so I think, I think progress will pick up actually. I'm quite optimistic. Good to hear. <clears throat> well, thank you for the great discussion. Um, I think my take home message from today has been that mental health research needs to move more to where cardiovascular and cancer research is at. We obviously need to have better mechanisms to predict who's at risk and who might have these mental illnesses later in life, and also have a better way of personalizing the treatment to each individual that comes through based on their symptoms, their brain patterns, and everything else. Um, but it's heartening to, see, heartening to see that such good work is going on, and I'm sure it's gonna get to that at some point. Um, so I'd like to thank the speakers for their discussion and insight into their depression research today, and thank everyone who's come and is on, online in the web. And I will uh, remind everyone that you can rewatch the webinar by going back through the same link that the live webinar was hosted through. Uh, so thank you for joining us today.